Ephesians uh, chapter chapter five. Please, uh, we began Hebrews several weeks ago, and I worked through chapter two, and we looked at Jesus' majesty, His glory as a man. And some folks had some very good questions about that. Somebody asked, well, if um, thinking about Jesus' resurrected body, um, if Jesus has a resurrected body, but yet he still has the scars that he bore on the cross, well, we still have some of the reminders of some of the scars, physical or, 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 um, or otherwise, uh, in our resurrected body. I don't think the answer to that is yes. I think Jesus chose those particular scars. That's my opinion. Um, to remind us of the great cost uh, of redemption. And uh, our bodies, I believe, will be perfectly whole. Um, I think there are great uh, uh, parallels to Jesus' resurrection body and ours, but I don't believe that we're going to have the scars that we've uh, faced here in this life. And I think Jesus chose those scars. Jesus chose those scars. In fact, there's a, there's a poem that someone written. I, I, his name is William, I think, Tolotson. can't remember exactly his, his, uh, his name, but it talks about how our God is the only God with scars, which shows the depth of his love. He's saying how deep the Father's love for us. And um, there's a reason he bore those scars. He bore those scars because he called us on a walk. He called us to take us to a destination. In March of 1985, there was a well-known English musician and musicologist who was in his mid-40s. His name was Clive Waring. And he was struck with a brain infection, a bacterial brain infection, that affected the parts of his brain, especially concerned with his memory. And he was left with a memory span of literally a goldfish, only seconds. It was the most devastating case, uh, uh, the medical journals tell us, of amnesia, memory loss, ever recorded. New events and experiences that he he had were, were almost erased almost instantly. And his wife, Deborah, wrote in a 2000 memoir, uh, Forever Today, she wrote this. His ability to perceive what he saw and heard was unimpaired. But he did not seem to retain any impression of anything for more than a blink. In other words, his senses worked. He could see things. He could see new things. He could hear new things. But he couldn't remember them. After he saw or heard them, a few seconds later, they would be gone from his memory. And even if he blinked, his eyes would see a memory that, if he blinked again, he'd forget. The view before the blink was utterly forgotten. Each blink, each glance away and back brought him an entirely new view. I tried to imagine how it was for him, something akin to a film with bad continuity. The glass half empty, then full. The cigarette suddenly longer. The actor's hair now tousled, now smooth. But this is real, a room changing in ways that were physically impossible. Each scene that he saw... He couldn't see the process of of, of how it changed. Uh, He'd only see what he saw right there for that moment. He was filmed in 1986 in a documentary called Prisoner of Consciousness. And he he felt desperately alone. Always fearful, always bewildered. You can imagine the the agony of of soul that he experienced. Um, He always felt that Something bizarre, something awful was the matter, but he couldn't 
put his finger on it. He, his replaint, uh, complaint was, was not of a faulty memory, but of being deprived of consciousness and life itself. His wife wrote again, it was as if every waking moment was the first waking moment of his life. Clive was under the constant impression that he had just emerged from unconsciousness because he had no evidence in his own mind of ever being awake before, even a few seconds previous. He said, I haven't heard anything, seen anything, touched anything, smelled anything, he would say. It's like being dead because all those memories were purged. Desperate to hold on to something to gain some purchase, he started to keep a journal, first on scraps of paper, then in a notebook. But sadly, his journal entries consisted of things like I am awake. I am conscious. Entered again and again every few minutes. He would write 2.10 p.m., this time properly awake. 2.14 p.m., this time finally awake, because he had forgotten he had already woken up, etc. That journal there um, seemed to just be written about the, uh, the, the affirmations and denials of, of his life. He's trying to affirm his existence, but he had no memory to build that on. Never-ending agony. It's a sad story. A man in his mid-40s facing something like that. I want to say this morning that the church in general is in a similar sad state. Today in the 21st century we developed a, a certain amnesia. There's an awakening that, awakening that is needed. An awakening that the New Testament writers call us to in passages like Romans 13. Awake now. See that your salvation is, is nearer than when you first believed. An awakening that yanks the church out of its bed, sets it on its feet, and mobilizes it for the walk that it has been summoned to. And that amnesia is based on a loss of a sense of the magnitude of eternity. We've been distracted by the fleeting trinkets that, that come through us, through the media and through, uh, uh, through distractions and and. and we pass on to an eternity that many times we have not labored and worked toward. A spiritual amnesia that has neglected the reality of eternity. You might say, well, what are the signs here of, of living under an amnesia that has forgotten the magnitude of eternity? Well, here's some suggestions here this morning to, to get our minds thinking. Someone who lives with eternity amnesia uh, lives with unrealistic expectations of this world. What do I mean by that? Well, they ask this present passing world to be what it was never created to be. And they see it as their final destination, but they forget it was never designed to be our final destination, and therefore it will never satisfy us. Someone with eternity amnesia uh, asks too much of people. They expect the people around them to provide a paradise for their hearts. To live for them. And they ask them to give us what they cannot. And it robs their peace and it delivers frustration and conflict as people fail. Someone with eternity amnesia is a person who is controlling and fearful. 
a person who, because of their unfulfilled longings, because of the wrong foundation they've built on, leads to insecurity that swings from uh, control freak to neurotic warriors. Someone who lives in eternity amnesia doubts the goodness of God. If they think this world should fulfill them, then they will never see that that God's promises reach their fulfillment in the next world, ultimately. There are tastes of God's good gifts down here, but the full meal is waiting in eternity, and they forget that. Someone who has forgotten the magnitude of eternity lacks motivation and real hope. Their hope is in this world, and that's why they get up each morning, and they see an endless cycle of dashed dreams and fading hopes. But an eternal mindset gives you reason to continue, even when it seems like nothing is working, that this world is not permanent, and eternity is indeed forever. Someone who has forgotten the reality of eternity may live as if life doesn't have consequences. They cast off God's word and how they're to live and and what we're to base our lives on. It's a sure sign they have forgotten the magnitude of eternity. They can go sleep with somebody and it's fine. They can go sleep with somebody else and it's fine. They can act this way and that's okay. But they've forgotten there are good and bad consequences for our lives here and now. And in eternity there is... The reality of some of those consequences being realized. There's punishment in eternity, and there is reward for the believer in eternity. A reward and a punishment that we will experience at a day of reckoning that not one of us is immune to and will escape. And so there can be no apathy when we're faced with the reality of eternity and the impact of our lives on that. Eternity in hell is real, and eternity in heaven is real. And we are preparing in this life now for one or the other. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, See then that you all, ye, walk circumspectly. You walk carefully. Not as fools, but as wise. Paul here brings up this idea of a walk. And if you think about a walk, some, some of you take walks on your road to get some exercise. Or you may take a hike. And a walk always has a beginning point, doesn't it? It has a beginning point. But when you say, I'm going to go on, I'm going to go on my walk, dear, that doesn't mean you step out of your door and you stand there, does it? The idea of a walk is something that continues, doesn't it? It has a beginning point, yes, but it has a moving point. And a walk is a journey. Uh, uh, Our walk through life is not something that we've yet arrived at. There's a destination before us. We have not hit yet because we're all right here in this room. That destination is eternity. There is a destination before us uh, uh, that we go toward where we're headed. A walk requires effort to put one foot in front of the other, doesn't it? A walk uh, requires a responsibility. You can't say, I'm going to go on a walk, honey, and wait for her to take her walk for you. 
It requires your personal responsibility and effort. And there is a truth that no one else can do this for you. This walk in Scripture is something that is on you through the power of the Holy Spirit. But nobody can take your walk for you. Every one of us must undertake it. Every one of us uh, gets on that walk at different points in our lives. Some of you have been saved recently. You have started on that walk. Some of you have been saved for over half a century. You have over 50 years of a walk with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says in the Gospels that this walk started when you went through a narrow gate. A narrow gate. And the idea of that narrow gate is that after that there is a narrow path. You see, you don't walk on a narrow gate and then, and then in front of you opens the broad path to destruction. No, there are two ways. There are two ways and only two ways. There is a narrow gate that is followed by a narrow path. There is a broad way that leads to destruction. You cannot walk through the narrow gate and then take the broad path. There are two different places. So Paul in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1, says, Be therefore followers of God. God is before us as dear children. And he says, And walk in love. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1, I'm in. Verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Back in chapter 4, in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Be careful how you walk. It is a high calling. God has summoned you through the gospel, and it is to be a humble walk, a walk that is in all humility. Chapter 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. In other words, there are people going with you on this walk. They're called your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says the attitude of this walk is a walk of humble love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In chapter 4, verse 17, he picks up this idea of walk, and he says, here's how you do not walk. Here is the walk on the broad way. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, as the unbeliever walks in the vanity of their mind. There needs to be a pure walk. Their mind's pure and unsaturated with the the truth of the Word of God. As we looked in chapter 5, verse 1, it's a sacrificial walk, a loving walk. Seeking the highest good of of those around us in 5, 1, and 2. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says... For you were sometimes darkness. You were on the broad path. You're on the narrow way now. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Children of light. That's how we're to walk. And then he gets to chapter 5 and verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, carefully, looking around, wise, guarded, not as fools, but as wise. So he brings it together here and he says, so be careful. It really matters how you walk in this Christian life. Be cautious, be deliberate, be intentional, not as unwise, but as wise, knowing then the the highest goal, conforming to Christ, God's glory, and then the wisest steps to get there. Not a carelessness, not an unintentional walk, not a blow with the wind walk. That's a foolish walk. 
And in verse 16, he tells us what this walk is to look like. And this is the focus of the text this morning. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. It's the idea of making the most of your time. Making the most of your time. Uh, in other words, it, 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 it is, it is uh, to not make the most of your time would be unwise and foolish. Now, in the Greek language, there's two different words for time. There is the word chronos, where we get the word chronology, and it's the idea of a measure of time. Uh, I've been alive for 37 years. You've been alive for this amount of years. Or you've been at this particular house where you live for such and such amount of years. It's a measure of time, chronos. That's not the word that's used here for time, redeeming the time. It's a different word. It's the word uh, kairos. Kairos. And it has the idea of a specific and strategic amount of time. It's It's the idea of a season of time. It's used nine times in Scripture, and I really want us to soak in what this word means, because it changes everything for us as believers. So I want to look at a few places in the New Testament where this word is used, so we can understand better what Paul says when he says, redeem the season, the opportunities that you've been given. But go with me to Luke chapter 4 and verse 13. Luke chapter 4 and verse 13. This is where Jesus has been... um, Jesus Christ has been uh, tempted. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, the scripture says, And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a kairos, for a season. The idea was he was waiting for another opportune time to seize and tempt Jesus. That's the word that's used. The same word used in Ephesians 5. Go with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 and verse 5. In uh, verse 25, excuse me. Acts 24, 25. And as he reasoned, Paul is speaking to Felix. As he's being questioned. It says, and as Paul, as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. In other words, Felix didn't think that his time to turn to Christ was at the right time in his life. Sadly deceived. Sadly deceived. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, the word's also used, where the writer Paul says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, at the exact right time, the most strategic time in history, the time that God had appointed, Christ died for the ungodly. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. Where Paul says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, 
And in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is a time of opportunity. You may never have this time again, Paul says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Can you feel the weight of this word here? Go with me to Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. It's a parallel passage to Ephesians 5, 16. Repeats the same idea of Ephesians 5.16 and Colossians 4 and verse 5. Where Paul says, walk. Now he's connecting the walk again with redeeming your time. Walk in wisdom toward them that were without. Walk in wisdom toward those that are uh, the, the world, unbelievers. Redeeming the time, redeeming the opportunities you've been given. A couple more here. Go, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And verse 15. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. He's talking about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys know that that is a day that has been appointed on God's calendar. It is a fixed date. Hasn't been revealed to us when that will happen. When Jesus Christ will appear. But in chapter 6 verse 15 of 1 Timothy it says, Who in his times he shall show. There will be an opportunity, there will be the time that is appointed when Christ will appear. Who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Titus chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul says, But half in due times manifested his word through preaching. This is the age where God has made clear his word through the proclamation of it. This is the time where he has revealed himself in a way that he has never revealed himself before. More fully through preaching, Paul says. And finally it's used in Hebrews 11.15. And it's translated in our translation here this morning as opportunity. And the same idea, again, in, in uh, Ephesians 5, verse 15. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. That word opportunity is the Greek word for, for, for time here that's used in Ephesians 5. An opportunity, a specific opening where the door was opened. And so we can take this idea in Ephesians 5, at verse 15, as a general way, as as indicating that believers are to employ their time wisely. In other words, it should be used in a disciplined way. There are opportunities of doing good that are not to be missed. It's like uh, some of you who who go shopping and you have a certain amount of money, a limited amount of money. You go to Freeport and you go to the outlets and you're saying, I'm going to just take this amount of money with me and this is what I'm going to spend there at the outlets. Maybe some of you men enjoy that too. I don't know. But the idea is we have a limited amount of time. And we must spend it wisely. You don't go to the outlets with that certain amount of money and just spend it frivolously. You know you have a certain amount and this is what you're going to get. And Paul says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We're to have a wise walk in evil days. That's the idea of these are the last days. We are not to contribute to the evil of days, but we're to make the best uses of time that will redeem sections of the days that are evil that we are in. 
And it's the idea of specific, limited, passing opportunities within time. There are moments... And life is filled with these moments, times when the door swings open and there is an opportunity only in that time to seize it. There's a limited time that door will close. It will never open again. Let me give you some example, an example. Fathers, you will not have the opportunity to go through the stage that your children are in and have that again later on. That opportunity is only open for a certain amount of time, right? And then you move on to the next stage. You will never go back to that stage or that particular child or those children. There will so be a specific season that will be gone and, and that you will have time to influence. That's the idea here. An opportunity that will be gone tomorrow. And so Paul says, and it's a wonderful translation, redeem that time. Buy it up. Is the literal translation. In other words, these opportunities are for sale only right now. Only guaranteed right now. They are not for sale tomorrow. You must buy it now. There's an urgency in this. There's an immediacy in this. Buy it now. These are, there are things that are only available to do now. They may not be available to do in five years. They may not be available to do next week. They may not even be available to do tomorrow. I will never be 37 years old again. You will never be the age you are again. You have this opportunity right now and that is it. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so Paul says, walk in wisdom. You cannot pass up these seasons, these opportunities. Use the opportunity you have now to buy up and lay up treasure in heaven. You see, the contrast here in this passage is the foolish man doesn't think this way. A foolish man will not buy up these moments, but a wise man will. Jesus said in John 9, 4, work for the night is coming. He said in the passage in Corinthians, Paul said, now is the accepted time. Today is the day. James says, boast not thyself of tomorrow. Don't base your plans on what's going to happen in the future. Yes, plan ahead. And by God's grace, trust Him to get you there. But it may not, you may not have tomorrow. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And why do we redeem the time? Because... The days are evil. These are the last days. We do not live in a Pollyanna world, do we? No. These are evil days. In other words, we must do the work of God. The church must do the church's work for God that it is outlined in Scripture now. And so then in verse 17, he says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. In other words, do not squander your time. Do not throw away your opportunities. And it was this very text in 1733 that Jonathan Edwards preached on a Sunday afternoon that struck the match, that lit the fuse of the Great Awakening in the colonies of America. Not too long afterward, he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and God broke through. But it was this sermon that ignited the colonies. And then George Whitfield came through as a traveling evangelist. And he fanned the flame that swept the Spirit of God through the Word of God through the colonies and the regions that even the region we're living in here in Maine. 
in New England. And what this passage tells us is that this life is not the final destination. But it is, listen carefully, this life is the final preparation. This life is your final preparation. Eternity is inescapable. You and I were made to live forever, and you and I were made to invest in forever things. We're pilgrims, the scriptures tell us, traveling toward a final destination. We're setting up temporary tents along the way, but this life is not absolutely all there is. This life, strangely, impacts the vastness of eternity. Of all that there is in eternity. So because this life is not the final destination, but this life is the final preparation, we must redeem the time. So he's telling us to listen. The spiritual resolve to have a vigor, a determination, a tenacity that we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand what the revealed will of the Lord is and to do it. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Eleven years earlier, before 1733, when Edwards preached that message that lit the fuse to the Great Awakening, as an 18-year-old man, Young man, he had been saved a year before, at the age of 17. At the age of 18, because he went through college, I'm normally young, he's a genius. And at the age of 18, he went and pastored a church that had split off from another church near Wall Street, New York City. In the pastor at 18, feeling the weight of that. Feeling the weight of not... Only the weight of revealing the eternal truth of God's word, but the weight of his life. He sat down at the age of 18, came up with 70 resolutions that he would try to live by based on scripture. Resolutions. Each one of them begins with the word resolve. The idea of resolve means determined. In the light of this text this morning, this is what led him to sit down and craft these 70 resolutions, redeeming the time. In those days, living to the age of 40 or 50 was a full life. He was 18, he was young, even in that age, in that day. But he knew his time was not guaranteed. And he knew that the great fault of the human spirit is to overestimate the time that we have. And he pens these 70 resolutions. I'm going to just share a few things uh, from them here. But I need, um, I need to uh, talk to my son very quickly and tell him that I need to get you, have him get something for me. <clears throat> I have an illustration that I forgot in the trunk of my van. He's going to get that for me. Um, Edwards starts off with his preamble before his, uh, before his resolution. He says, being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. So these are not, are not just things he's going to try to do in his own power, but understanding, underlying this, is that by God's grace, he's going to commit his life to these principles. 
I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And I'm going to read over these things one time every week. He died at the age of 55 from a smallpox vaccine. So he did not live a long, a long life. But he resolved to read over these once a week. And he lays out his, his overall uh, mission in life. And I want you to look at, at uh, the first five uh, resolutions here. They're written in language that's a little difficult to understand, but I'm going to summarize them here. He says, Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and, for, and my own good, profit and pleasure, in the whole of my duration, my whole life, I'm going to commit to God's glory. Without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. What he's saying is, I'm going to invest in eternity for God's glory. Resolution number one. Resolution number two. Resolve to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. What he means by that is... If God's glory is a foundation for which I am to live for, then I am going to think of opportunities and creative ways to do that. In other words, I'm going to really think about what it means to live for God's glory. And I'm going to put those things into effect. I'm going to apply that. And then he says, resolve, number three, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. He says, when there is a, when there is a, uh, uh, a, a, a lapse, I'm going to repent and get back on that narrow path. Resolved, number four, never to do... Any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. He's saying very simply here that in my soul or in my body, whatever is, it magnifies the glory of God, I'm going to push my life into that. And number five. Never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Use that time for the greatest good for God's glory, he says. He's saying, well, this is ridiculous. Who can do this? Well, Jonathan, I was going to do it. That's why I had that one that says, I'm going to repent when I don't. But he was determined to live his life for the glory of God. You see... God has ordained the days that you have. You didn't choose your birthday, did you? We all have a certain amount of days that God's given us. We do not know how many He's given us. Some He has given more, some He has given less. Job chapter 14 and verse 5. Job recognizes this. The scripture says, Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. 
Psalm 139.16 has the idea of God has written in a book our years. You only have so much time and so many opportunities to glorify God on that shelf. And when you walk by that shelf and you don't take those opportunities, that time and those opportunities can never be retrieved, can they? I'd like you to go with me to Psalm 90 and verse 10. This is a prayer. This is a psalm of Moses. In Psalm 90, verse 10, Moses says, Moses says, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. Seventy years. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, Yet it is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off when we fly away. He says most of us live around 70. Some of us might live to 80. Perhaps some more, some less. But he takes that basic general rule. He says we live about 70 years. And if you would think about your life as a yardstick, there are 36 inches in a yardstick. And you would take each, year, each inch on that and say that represents two years of your life. And that first third of your life there, those 12 inches representing 24 years of time, most of you, that's gone, right? That's gone. 24 years is gone. Then there are the next 12 years of your life, representing 48 years of your life. It's gone. It's gone. And then there is that last stretch there. Maybe some of you will reach 60, and some of you are already there. Some of you reach 70, some of you are already past that. But you never get those back. You never get those years back. And that's the idea here. Because in Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That we may walk wisely. That we may redeem the time. So, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. In other words... He did something that's very uncomfortable, but very important. He imagined his last hour on earth. Now, apparently he thought about this at least once a week. And he said, thinking back to my last hour on earth, what is there that I would regret if I do not do it now? And he worked backwards from that moment. He was determined in purpose. It's the idea of Ephesians 5.15. Folks, our time is precious because it affects eternity. What you do within your time allotted to you affects eternity. Affects your reward, your welfare. Why is it precious? Why is time so precious? First of all, it is precious because it is in short supply. It is a scarce commodity. And secondly, it is precious because it is uncertain. 
None of us know how much life we have left. Whether you're the youngest one here or whether you're the oldest one here. Thirdly, it is precious because it can never be recovered. Other assets can be recovered. You may have a business and you may go bankrupt in that business, but you may be able to build up that business again and cover those assets. Not time. And those who live in idleness and wandering through this life and living just for this life, just killing time with no investment for eternity, are wasting God's time. Those involved in wickedness are wasting God's time. Perhaps it's stirring up strife, enjoying sin, living for themselves, living only for comfort, slandering others, ensnaring others to sin with them, bad examples, backbiting, anger, tempting others to sin. Wickedness. Breathing God's air He gave them and using it for the purposes of darkness. Edwards said, it would be better for them to go to hell now so as not to increase their destruction and degree of punishment in eternal hell. Perhaps there are those who are chasing this world and trying to get a portion of it uh, and the fashions and possessions and fame. And Edwards would ask, are you, not, are you better for it? Is a poor, perishing soul better for seeking the world? Isaac Watts would say, is it a friend for grace to take me home? No. See, the truth is, several years ago, I saw an illustration here about eternity with a piece of rope. Let's say this rope here represents eternity. And this piece of rope right here is your life. It's your life. The rest of rope is representing eternity. And look look how small that piece is. It's probably even overestimated. Probably should be more like a dot. But so you can see it. The part of purple there is, is your life. And some of you are here on the rope. And some of you are here. And some of you are here. And some of you, if you... Uh, by reason of age, might be here. And so what we do in our life is we, we spend so much time uh, investing here so that we have a, a, good, a good, fun life here, right? For what? Right? I'm not saying you don't invest in retirement, but you use your retirement years for God's glory as well. But this is it. We spend so much in this. And we have this. I mean, we could stretch this. I got this from uh, Dick Lowell, one of those lobster ropes. You could stretch this around the room, probably. And it's not even the beginning of eternity. How foolish, how tragic it would be to live just for this. To miss this. Folks, we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. No exceptions. Everyone. We won't have our mommies to stand with us. We won't have our spouses to stand with us. We will stand and give a personal account of our lives. 
to God for our time, your time. And what will we say to the Lord in that day? This is hard-hitting when I consider how much time I have wasted. This is hard-hitting when I consider those, or even myself, at the end of my time. Whenever that may be. I may not live to the age of 38. I don't know that. And I have talked, and even in my young life, to many folks who would give everything for more time. People on their deathbeds who would give a large amount for another hour. And folks, if we could take a journey to the bowels of hell and listen to the shrieks of those in hell What do you think they would give to have the chance that we have to live for the glory of Christ? Do you think about the last hour of your life? Many times all the things we worry about really don't matter when you think about life in light of eternity. I heard the story of an old preacher who told a group of younger preachers to remember that you are going to die. And he was telling them to make sure that they uh, uh, reproduce themselves and train up leadership in the church. But he said this, they're going to put you in a box, they're going to put the box to the ground, they're going to throw dirt on your face, they're going to go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) And there's a tension with that. There's a tension where we are not as important as we think. But with that, our time is more important than we think. How much time do I have left? I don't know. I guarantee tomorrow. How much time do you have left? I would guarantee that probably what we have left is less than what we imagine we have left. We have less time available, folks, to glorify God than we think we do. And how critically imperative that we let every moment be full throttle for the glory of God. And so church, I'm asking you with me and with others, Will you strive by God's power and His grace to pursue the glory of God in a way that you never have this year? It's going to require surrender. It's going to require grace-driven effort. But I want to begin this season here to ask you to seek His face and wake us up. Awaken our hearts. Ask Him to grant you and our church a great awakening that begins on our knees. The opportunities that God's put before us individually and the opportunities that He puts before us as a church, are you resolved to redeem the opportunities that God gives you to glorify Him this year? 
Will you look for the opportunities that may not come again? That when the door is swung open, I will seize those by God's power and grace. I'll be like Caleb of old and say, give me this mountain. Let me claim it for your glory. Let your name be set apart. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you see life in an eternal vision? Or will you just live for this thought here? We live in this thought. You don't live for this thought. And this life is not our destination. But it is our final preparation. For the glory that Scripture says will be revealed. What are we living for? Redeeming the time. And so over the next few weeks, as God works in our hearts and and awakens us to His power, to His reality, to His presence, will we seek His face? Will we begin with prayer? Will you start to weed out the media and this and that that distracts you from God's glory and His calling in your life? Will you fast from those things? You see, fasting doesn't just have to be missing your sandwich for lunch. Fasting is separating yourself from something that's distracting you from His glory. Saying, I'm focusing on the Lord. Will we live for God's glory?